We're actually in the middle of a series that's called Family Matters. And uh, Pastor Bowen started this a couple weeks ago, and we're going to kind of be tag teaming over the next couple weeks. I'm going to be sharing today, and next week he'll be sharing uh, from the pulpit. And then two weeks from today, I'll be finishing up this series on Family Matters. And we, we pray that it encourages you and challenges you and, and, and blesses you. And because uh, we know that the family is something that definitely matters to God. Amen. Amen. And uh, what I'm going to be talking to you about today is healing and restoring relationships within the family. And uh, I'm not even necessarily going to confine it just to the family because, you know, we're a family here too. And uh, anybody we're in relationship with is, is family, especially we're part of the family of God. So uh, I want to talk to you about that today. How many of you feel like you could do some help in, in bringing some healing or restoration into some of your family relationships? I think, uh, I think a lot of us could. If you're not at that place today, you probably have been there and you probably will be there again in the future because as long as people are people... Uh, we're going to have healing that, and restoration that needs to happen in our relationships. You know, somebody said one time, you can choose your friends, but you don't, cho- you don't choose your family. And uh, having family uh, is, is it's one of those things where we can be hurt the most by our family because they're the ones that are the closest to us. They're the ones that we care about the most. And so uh, that also opens us up for the most hurt and, and breakdowns in relationship. And so uh, I know this, I'm, I'm tired of the enemy uh, fighting and seemingly sometimes winning the battle with us as believers in our relationships with our family because, you know, God instituted the, the, the idea of family. And because he did that, the enemy's always going to be coming against it. That's right. it's, he's always going to come against the family because the family is something that God ordained. And, you know, the enemy, he doesn't create anything. We know that. Pastor Mona said that many times. The enemy's not, he, the devil's not a creator. He's a distorter. He takes things that are good and tries to distort them. You know, you heard, there's no such thing as a counterfeit $3 bill because nobody would believe it. You, you counterfeit the things that are real. And that's exactly what the enemy does. And he comes against us uh, in our families. And so today we're going to fight back against that. Amen. Anybody willing to, to fight for your relationships in your family? Amen. 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 It's not easy, but anything worth having is worth fighting for. And the things that are good in life, the things that really are good and have a lot of value in life are almost always things we have to fight for. You know, the, the, the easy things aren't always that good. In fact, somebody said, you know, if it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. And that's the case a lot of times in life is if something's really easy, it's, uh, it's probably more temporal. Because the things that really matter are the things that we're in a war and we're soldiers in the army of God. And we have to be willing to fight for the things that matter to us and what matter to God. And we know that the family does matter. So I want to jump right in. I want to give you uh, my first verse today that I'm going to be kind of springboarding off of for this entire message this morning. And it's in the book of Romans. This is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman church. And it's in chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Well, that's easy, right? Uh, If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Man, I know you're all thinking, well, that's really easy. Why did you start with such an easy verse? You know, doing what's right in the eyes of everybody is a piece of cake and, you know, living at peace with everyone. Well, that's really easy. That's, that's something that just comes natural for all of us, right? Uh, I'm being facetious because I know that's not easy. That's actually a, uh, that's a pretty challenging verse to be reading right off the top. Uh, but I do want to clarify, you know, he doesn't say there to live at peace with everyone. He says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What he's saying there is sometimes peace can't be, can't be purchased in a relationship, but if it can't be, make sure that it's not because of you. Make sure you're doing everything you can do to make sure that you can live at peace with everyone. Now, you know, not, not all relationships can be restored. There's a difference between healing and restoration. And the reason not all relationships can be restored is because restoration requires both parties willing to come together to restore. 
But healing always, always depends on us. The healing depends on us because to be healed, you don't need the other person. You can be healed in spite of the other person sometimes. And we often have to do that, don't we? There's times you just can't be reconciled because there's just too much of a difference of opinion or there's just two different stories on how it happened. And no matter how much you come together, it's just not going to happen. But you don't, have to, you don't have to live in that state of brokenness and, and of hurt and offense. We can actually be healed in all of our relationships because it only depends on us. And that's God's heart for us. And that's what Paul is saying here is that to make sure that as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And frankly, there, there aren't many situations in our life where we can't live in peace with people in our family. There, there, those do happen. There's no doubt about it. I've had relationships in my own family where it just, there was times where it just felt like it was impossible and you almost just have to, you have to step aside for a minute, but you, you can be healed in the midst of that because of who God is and what he's called us to. And I just want to express to you today that I believe our tendency in our relationships is to actually do the opposite. It's to, it's to find fault with the other person, right? It's to, it's to look at what they are doing that's causing us to have the problems in our relationships with them. You know, how many of us haven't prayed, oh, Lord, I pray that you would show them the error of their ways. You know, you may even pray like, Holy Spirit, get them. <laughs> we, we've probably all done that. You know, and, and in reality, the only ones that can really do that are teenagers because they're the only ones that are perfect. Right? Ooh, that's a little jab at the youth. Sorry, guys. I have three teenagers, so I, I'm allowed to say that. Right? Um, actually, I, won't, I have three teenagers starting in two months, so pray for me. Enjoy. Uh, but, you know, our, our tendency is to want to, to look at, try to get God to fix the other person, when in reality, we need to be looking at ourselves. We need to be looking at, at our role in our relationships. And the bottom line is we want all of our relationships to be healed and whole, but I think sometimes we don't even know how to get there. You might be in a situation with one of your family members or, or someone that is so, such a close friend, you feel like they're a family, that you just can't seem to get traction with them. And it almost feels hopeless. Like, how, am I, how would I ever, like, I believe in the concept of healing and restoration, but I just don't see a path to how, how I will ever even get there. Well, I hope to help you with that today, because it's not hopeless. As long as we have the Holy Spirit working and living and moving in us, there's, it's possible. Amen? It's not only possible, it's probable. If we, will, if we will walk out the principles of the Word of God. And so I want to help you with that today. And I hope by the time we're done today that we'll have some tools, we'll have, we'll have some fresh insight, we'll have uh, a directive on how we can attack those relationships in a good way for the glory of God. And I want to start with talking to you just for a minute about the foundation of the family. Excuse me, for some reason today I have dry mouth. But the foundation of the family, I'm, not, I'm just going to spend a minute on this because Pastor Bowen actually started this series a couple weeks ago talking about the foundation of the family and that basically the family, the institution of family started with God. Okay, that's, that's pretty basic. We know that. And it's, it's started way back in the book of Genesis. You know, God created Adam. He said it's not good for man to be alone. So he created Eve. They got together, had some kids. Boom, the first family. And so God created the institution of family. It's very, very important to him. And it's important to him because we know, based on the heart of God, that if our family relationships are functioning in a healthy way, that we will have a greater impact on the kingdom of God. Amen. I should say we'll have a greater impact against the kingdom of darkness. Because when we're working together as a family, God instituted it. He started it. He didn't just start it just so we could have fun. Okay? Obviously, the things that God does for us, are they end up being fun. They're supposed to be if we're doing it right. But, the, but the, the premise behind it is so that we can work together and we can be more effective for the kingdom of God. And so if, we're to, if, if that's God's plan for us, then we can know that that's the enemy's plan is to come against it. 
You know, someone coined the phrase one time, better together. You've probably seen that in different places in your life. And, uh, and that, that's such a great way to sum up the heart of God is that we are better together. He said it's not good for Adam to be alone. He created us to be in family together. And it's not even just in, in blood family, but it's in our church family. You know, one of, the, one of the biggest reasons we have church is so that we can be a family of believers on coming together. That's why the Bible tells us, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. We're, we're called to come together like this. You guys are actually, you're, you're listening to the word of God by coming to church. Okay? And I think you're really listening to him because you came to the right church. Amen? Hey, I think this is the right church. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. But that's it's why even in the church, that's why we, you know, as a church, that's why we have connect groups. It's why we have small groups because we want to, we want, we don't think the Sunday morning is enough for us. As, as believers, we want to be together. We want to be in family together. We have connect groups that meet during the week to, to make it, bring down the size and make it more intimate and where we can be doing life together. It's why we have our dream team where we serve together because when we're together, we're better. If, especially if we're working together in unity. And that's God's plan for us. That's the foundation of what family is. And that's the heart of God for us. So if, if God's heart is that we would be better to be together and be working unified, again, we know that the enemy's plan would be that we would be disunified and separated and splintered and, uh, and, and selfish and functioning in our own way and, and trying to get our, do our own thing. In fact, you can go as far as to say the enemy has a playbook that he uses against the family and against relationships. You know, when you think of a playbook, I think of like with football, you know, football teams, they all, they have playbooks that they use. It's a binder that they have that uh, they give to every member of the team. And it, it shows the plays that, they're, that they do. And it shows the game plan, the strategy for what they're going to do to defeat the other team. And it's important that everybody on the team has that playbook and studies it and looks at it and knows what's going on. Because this is how we're going to work together to try to defeat this team that's coming against us. Okay. And how much better is it, even though it's unethical, how much better is it if you get the other team's playbook? And you get to look at their plays and you get to see what they're doing. Because if you get to see what they're doing, you know that you have an, an, an advantage against them because you know what's coming before they bring it. Well, the enemy does the same thing. He has a playbook that works against us. How great would it be if we had his playbook? Well, you know what? We're in luck. Because I just happened to find the enemy's playbook. I went to the enemy's camp and I stole his playbook. Okay, a few old-time Pentecostals, you know, that was a song that had nothing to do with a playbook. But I went to the enemy's camp, and I took back what the enemy stole from the devil stole from me. Well, I just took this, even though he didn't steal it from me, I stole it from him. Okay, now I realize this is incredibly cheesy, but I'm willing to be cheesy so that I can give you guys a visual. Okay, I made this myself, actually. You guys should be impressed. All about says property of Beelzebub, and it's got one of his plays on here, right there, you know, and so. I found this, and I'm going to use it today because we've got the enemy's playbook, and we're going to talk about what his plays are against the family relationships because when we know what his plays are, we can counter them. Yeah. Amen? So that's what we're going to do today, and I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to start with the first one. If you look at the first play in the enemy's playbook against relationships, it's called the blame game. The blame game. When we live a life of blaming others for our problems and others for issues in our relationships, we are playing right into the enemy's hands. That's what he would want to do against the church is get us to be blaming each other and looking at everybody else and looking at what you did to me rather than look at myself. That's his plan for each and every one of us. Our tendency is to do that, isn't it? The human tendency is to look at what somebody did to hurt you and just focus on it, fixate on it, and, we're, and think about what they've done rather than looking at ourselves and what we've done. You know, even if it's the other person's fault, whatever, whatever's caused the breakdown in a relationship, even if it's their fault, there's no place in the life of a Christian to be casting blame, right? 
Because at the end of the day, the greatest sacrifice that was ever made was on a cross by Jesus. And it was done for you and me, even though we didn't deserve it. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were still sinners, he didn't wait for us to get everything in order. He said, I'm going to go the extra mile. And I'm, going to, I'm going to go die for these people while they're still sinners. What happens in our relationships a lot of times is that we become like insurance companies. Okay? Now, if you have auto insurance, you have an accident. If you call your auto insurance company while you're still at the scene, you know what they're going to tell you almost every time? Don't admit fault. Whatever you do, I don't care that you ran a red light and T-boned them in the side. Do not admit fault. Because the insurance company is in it to cover their back. Right? They're in it for the money. They've done a good job of marketing and making you feel like they care about you. They care about their money, okay? And that's okay, that's, it's a business. If, they're, if they market it in a way that, that kind of dupes us a little bit, so be it. But that's what the insurance companies do. Well, that's what we can do. We can start to become like insurance companies and we'll never admit fault. We'll never admit any of our fault, even if it wasn't even all our fault, if it was mostly the other person's fault, the tendency can be to just cast blame. To cast blame, deny, 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 right? That's the, that's the politician's move. Just deny. If you deny it enough, they'll start to believe you and it'll become fact. But all we're doing in, a, in our relationships when we do that is we're just hurting ourselves. And we're playing right into the enemy's hands. Because when we blame, we're affecting our life in a way that is detrimental to us. And that's exactly what he would want. Because what we'll do is we'll, we'll cast blame on a situation that happened. You may, you may have like somebody that said, oh, my, my spouse left me. And because of that, I can't trust people in life. Or, you know, something traumatic happened. Somebody did something to me. And so now I just have to control every situation. I just control, control, control. And we use the, those, those incidences in our relationships to even affect other areas of our life because we're putting our blame, the blame on that person. Whoever it was that hurt us, we're putting that blame on them and saying it's their fault that all these other things are happening in my life. I hear it all the time, even in the church. I'm sure you guys hear it too. Some of you maybe struggle with that. Well, we want to cast that blame so that we don't have to take any responsibility for ourselves. And I'm going to be honest with you, I feel like one of the greatest hypocrisies for a Christian is this incredible ability that we have to see and point out other people's flaws with an inability to see our own. It's a huge hypocrisy in the church. And I'm telling you today, church, there is no place for it. There's no place for it in the life of a Christian. None at all. In fact, Jesus addressed the issue of blame very clearly. It's a short verse. That, is, that you guys have all heard. We've actually, we kind of joke about it, make fun of it because it's, it's so ludicrous when you think about it. But it's in Matthew 7 and verse 3. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Amen. Now, you know, none of us have planks in our eyes. But what he's saying here is why do you, why do you uh, have this inability to see your own faults, but you have this incredible ability to point out the smallest little thing in somebody else's eye? You're blaming them for what's going on. When in reality, we, don't have, we, we have no right to blame or, to, or to, put, uh, to put undue burden on other people, no matter what they've done to us. Because Jesus tells us clearly that it's, it's imperative upon us to forgive. You know, to be able to, to uh, it says love covers a multitude of sins. If we really love, then we understand there's no place for us to blame. And what, what Jesus is basically saying here is, and I, I heard this from a sermon not too long ago, is a good analogy is that rather than have a magnifying glass where you're looking at everybody else's faults and you're magnifying them with your magnifying glass, he's saying, put the magnifying glass down and pick up a mirror. Yeah. You need to have a mirror where you're looking at your own imperfections, your own 
issues that you have. You know, in fact, I would even go a step further and you know those two-sided mirrors, the one's normal and the other one like really magnifies you and scares to death, scares you to death when you look at it the first time because you see every little imperfection in your own life, in your own face. We should be looking at that mirror and, and, and looking at ourselves and saying, okay, God, and this is not to nitpick ourselves and to tear ourselves apart and to beat ourselves down, but it's to look at ourselves and say, God, what is it in me that I could do to help this situation? What is it in me that's keeping this, this relationship from really being healed and restored? But what we want to do is we want to pick up the magnifying glass. We want to look real closely at everybody else's things and what that person did to me. You know, they, they might have said something about you or to you that hurt your feelings. And so you put the magnifying glass on it and you magnify it. And I'm here to tell you today that uh, the, the things that you magnify in life, as long as you magnify them, you will live in the pain of that moment for the rest of your life. As long as you continue to magnify because what you magnify gets bigger. And it'll grow. It'll become more than it even started out as. You know, it's like the, it's like the fish story. When you first tell it, you know, that I had a two-foot fish that got away. The next time, it's three foot. And by the time you're done telling it, it was a blue whale. Right? It's the same thing. When we get that magnifying glass out, we're magnifying everybody else's imperfections. And instead of wanting to turn a mirror towards ourselves and look at ourselves. And Jesus said, don't look at the speck in your brother's eye and ignore the plank in your own. Now, he didn't say the other person doesn't have anything wrong with them. But he's saying that we have to look at ourselves yeah. and focus on that. Amen. No one has the power to keep you down except you. That's right. You have all the power. Yeah. You can't blame anybody else for any of, the, any of the issues in your life, anything that's keeping you down. You cannot blame them because if we will release that blame, if we will walk in that victory that God has called us to walk in, nobody can do anything to you that can keep you down. Amen? Amen. All right, the next one. What, I, what the enemy calls double O. Well, again, this is his, so I'm just reading what he get. Actually, it's uh, often offended is what the next play in the enemy's book is. And this is, uh, I'm going to spend a little more time on this than the rest of them, because I believe that offense is the number one thing killing relationships and families. Without question. Offense is rampant through our culture, and it's even rampant in the church. And I believe that God's heart is devastated by all the offense that we have, that we carry in our lives because there's no place for it in the church. We are in an age of reaction. We are in an age where it's almost like people are looking for things to be offended about. And when it comes to people that don't know Jesus, there's a different standard than there is for those of us in the church. And we as the church have got to stop letting the world set our standards for how we get offended. We have to stop. We cannot allow the world to determine the standards that we will live by. Right. Look at what Proverbs 18 and 19 says. It says, an offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. How true is that? Like in, that, in this, the day that this was written, there was nothing more secure than a fortified city. And the, and the, the person writing Proverbs here is saying, a brother that is offended it's harder to win back than a fortified city. It's so true. Now, you might be looking at me saying, what are you saying? You're telling me I'm not allowed to have my feelings hurt? Nope, not telling you that at all. If, if we open ourselves up, if we're in relationship, like I said at the beginning of this, those closest to you are the ones that can hurt you the most. And we can absolutely get hurt. There's nothing, there's not a sin. There's nothing wrong with being hurt. What, what, what is wrong with it is when we stay in that hurt because then that hurt becomes offense. Yeah. Okay. It's imperative upon us to not stay in that hurt, but 
to be able to release that hurt, to be able to walk in forgiveness and healing. And we can't, we, if we stay in there, that's when offense comes in. And, and the biggest difference between offense and hurt, hurt is a, a feeling you have when somebody does something to you. Offense is an evil, tormenting spirit. It, I mean, I'm not glossing over anything. It's absolutely a tormenting spirit. There is a spirit of offense that is from the pit of hell. It's from the devil's playbook. And he do- loves nothing more than when we adhere to that and we allow that into our life. And we walk around in offense because of what somebody did to us. Now, do we belittle what people have done to us and, and say it doesn't matter? No, of course we don't. But being followers of Jesus, we have the power and the ability to walk in healing and, and, and being willing, able to let go of that offense. We absolutely, I can tell you today, I want to make a bold statement. It is absolutely possible for a follower of Jesus to live in such a way that it is almost virtually impossible for you to be offended. Ooh, it got quiet. It's absolutely possible. It's not easy. But again, nothing worth having is really easy, right? We can absolutely live without offense, church. It's all about perspective for us. It's all about perspective. Let me read from from James chapter 1. This is the brother of Jesus, so he has some authority too. Verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds also known as opportunities for offense. Okay, I'll put that in there myself. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face uh, opportunities for offense, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He's saying, consider it pure joy when opportunities to get offended come your way. Now, uh, as a cursory reading, that sounds ridiculous. Who's going to be like, oh, good, that person really tore me to shreds. Man, I'm so excited about that. Okay? That's not the kind of joy that James is talking about here. He's saying if you have the right perspective, though, you can know that any opportunity that comes to offend you is actually meant to build you, build your perseverance, build your maturity to where you will be lacking nothing. This is not something for when we get into heaven. This is something to live the here and now. And if we will have that perspective, knowing that no matter what comes my way, it's not about me. It's about bringing glory to my father. And so I cannot, you cannot offend me because no matter what you say to me, I know that the Lord is in it, that he's going to use it for his glory. Paul said in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things, including offenses. And so for us as believers to sit and be offended and sit with our arms crossed and be mad, and talk about how upset we are about what somebody did to us is completely contrary to the Word of God. And we're adhering to the standards of the world, and we're playing right into the enemy's handbook. And he's winning. But now, we have the devil's playbook, and so we can be proactive against it. Right? We can choose not to be offended. My wife says that you got this little lawyer in your head that tells you, like, when somebody does something, tries to get you to be offended. And you have to tell that lawyer to shut up. And you have to listen to the Holy Spirit and let, let him tell you what he wants to tell you, because he would say, there's no place for offense. Don't be offended, because what you're going to do if you're offended, it's a spirit, and it's going to torment you. Some of you have been tormented for a long time, a long time, and it's because of offense. It's just that simple. It really is. Now, letting go of offense is not easy. That's why Proverbs says that. It's harder to win back than a, than a, a fortified city, a brother that's offended. But we can be diligent. We can, we can choose to not be offended. You can absolutely do it. And we're not doing it on our own. As followers of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. 
He's the one that helps us. But we have to be willing to lay it down and say, okay, God, I'm really struggling with laying this down. Uh, I want to hold on to this offense so tightly it's become like a teddy bear for me almost. It's become a comfort zone. And the Lord would say, I want you to let it go. You have to make that, that movement. The Lord doesn't jerk stuff out of your hands. You have to be willing to lay it down. And when we're done at the end of the service today, I encourage you to come up and just lay it down. Just come to the altar and just lay it down. It's a figurative thing that we do when we come to an altar and we just say, God, I'm giving this to you. And he will meet you. You may not have this bolt of lightning come out of the ceiling here, but you, you'll, you will, if you continue to lay that down, you will start to see the Lord working in your heart and changing you. Um, the, the world's standards for offense are, are so different than ours. And we have to be willing to understand that we can't hold them to the same standard that we have. Because a lot of our offense sometimes is with people that aren't saved, aren't Christians. It might even be people on TV, politicians. You know, I, man, there's times I got to turn the TV off, the news, because I just see stuff being said that just kind of gets under my skin a little bit. And I, I don't want to let any offense settle in. But we can't hold them to the same standards. Look at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 4. He said, the God of this age, that's Satan, that's a small g, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The enemy is actively working against the non-believer to be able to see the light of the gospel. The light, the gospel brings light into situations in our life. It helps us to see more clearly. We walk out of the darkness, we walk into the light, and we can see things in a way that we couldn't see them before we gave our lives to Jesus. And what the enemy is saying is, I can't let them walk into that light. So he, he works hard to keep the world, to keep the, the, the person that would not say that they're a Christian out of that light. And I would tell you today, if you're someone that you would say, well, I'm not a Christian. I'm here today. I'm not even sure why I'm here. I'm kind of feeling out this whole Christianity thing. I'm telling you, there's a darkness that the enemy is trying to keep in your life so you do not see the truth of the light of the gospel. But all it takes is a, it's just a matter of you taking a step into that light and saying, Jesus, I give you my life. I want to walk in your light. Because when you do, you start to approach situations differently. You start to see things differently. You have wisdom and discernment that you can't have if you're not living your life for Jesus. And so we know the light of the gospel. We know the truth of the light of the gospel. And I just, as a kind of a subtext here, I want to give you three things really quickly that kind of go towards that. What is the light of the gospel? What is that for us as believers that live in that light? And I would say the first one is that everything is for the glory of God. We as Christians cannot fall into that trap of thinking that this life is about us. It's not about us. Once you give your life to Jesus, that's exactly what you did. You gave it to him. The Bible says that Jesus bought us for a great, a great price. And Paul said that, that I, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the heart of the gospel. That everything is for him. Everything is for God's glory. Everything that happens to us is to bring him glory. And if opportunities for offense come, then we should, we, the reason we can look at it with joy is because we know, oh, good, this is another opportunity for me to glorify Jesus. That's what it is. There's, there's, I mean, it's pretty simple. We are meant to live our lives, and everything is for his glory. You cannot get offended when you know that everything that happens is an opportunity to bring him glory. But see, what's happened is that humanism has snuck into the church. Humanism is the philosophy that a lot of people live by, the world lives by, that everything we do is for the happiness of man. You know, if it feels good, do it. If you're not hurting anybody else, just do it. Live your best life, you know, do your, do your thing and have fun. Make as much money as you can and, you know, do everything you can do. That's humanism. And that's crept its way into Christianity where we, we kind of want to live that same way, but we kind of want to add Jesus to it. 
Like, oh, by the way, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm saved too, so I get to go to heaven. That's not Christianity, church. That's not the gospel. The gospel is laying down your life. Getting saved is not like, okay, God, I want to have a better life, so I'm going to go ahead and let you come into it. He doesn't, Jesus won't come in as your co-pilot. He's going to come in and take over. That's what Christianity is. That's, that's living true faith. He says, everything is for my glory. I saved you for my glory. It, you get the perks of it. Praise God for that. But it's all for him. And that's what we have to understand when we understand the light of the gospel is that everything's for his glory. The, other, the next one is ca- uh, self-sacrifice. It is easy to get offended when our focus is on ourselves, and we don't really want to sacrifice our life and lay it down. But the Bible's very, very clear. Paul tells us in Romans 12, I believe, that we are to live our lives as a living sacrifice for him. This is our whole, this is our, this is our spiritual act of worship, that we will be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's the heart of the gospel. And that's how we walk in a way that we cannot be offended. Because we understand that everything we are, we are, that we are not ourselves anymore. We're just this, we are this, uh, this vessel that God is using for his glory. We self-sacrifice. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's talking to the, he's rebuking the Corinthian church because these, these guys are having lawsuits against each other because they're so determined to win. You know, they, they're not willing to self-sacrifice at all. They want to win these fights. Doesn't really say what they are, but he says, you know, you're having these lawsuits against each other. And he says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 6, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? That's pretty powerful. That's not allegory. That's not, that's not him just trying to be uh, given illustration. He's, he's saying it from his heart. Rather than having to win against each other and being unwilling to sacrifice for each other, he said, you, you're so determined to win that you're already completely defeated because of your attitude. And he goes on to say, why not just be wronged? What's so terrible about being wronged by somebody? So what if your cousin borrowed 200 bucks and never paid it back? Is that reason to walk in a fence and be tormented the rest of your life? You know, he's saying, why not just be wronged? We as believers, should, if it comes down to it, we can't reconcile. We should just say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll lose. You can win. I'm, I'm good with that. Because I know my God, he will meet all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And I know that he's going to take care of me. And I know this is going to bring him glory as I step back and say, I'm okay to not win this fight. You know, that's good marriage advice too, guys. Winning the fight with your spouse is not about winning the fight and, and, and being able to get the last word. Winning the fight is being able to walk away knowing you're reconciled. And, but some of us just can't, just can't seem to get past the idea that we have to win. Like, well, but, but she was wrong. Well, so what? Who hasn't said I'm sorry or I was wrong in a dispute with your spouse when you didn't mean it? <laughs> We've all done it, right? And that actually helps to break down the walls. If somebody, if somebody is willing to start off by saying, I'm sorry, then all of a sudden the walls start coming down and the peace starts coming and you start to work through it. That's what, that's what God's saying here. Don't, be, don't, don't have to win. You know, Paul's saying like the fact that you have to win so bad is why you're defeated. What, how about the irony in that? You want to win is actually making you defeated. Don't worry about winning as believers. The win is knowing God is glorified in our lives. And then finally, the, the third one of the light of the gospel is forgiveness. And I have to be careful with this because I can spend all day on this because I, I believe so wholeheartedly in it. We've all had to walk through forgiveness in our life, forgiving people that have wronged us and our family and, and done all kinds of things. And, and I'm just here to tell you today, 
there's, there's no justification for a Christian to walk around with unforgiveness. None, ever. And I, I, I'll just point you to one example. Jesus himself on the cross, nails in his hands and in his feet, and a crown of thorns literally sewn onto his head. He looks down from the cross at those that were killing him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's all you need to know. I, I, you know, we have some knockout roses at our house, and it seems like the weeds like to grow right around them. I think it's to taunt me, because they know I'm going to have to get close to the roses with those thorns. And when I go pull weeds next to the knockout roses, I'm always wearing gloves. But sometimes, even then, a thorn will get through that glove and prick me in the finger. That hurts. And I tell you, I don't want to forgive that rose bush right then. I want to get my chainsaw and cut it down. <laughs> That's from one little thorn pricking my finger. Can you imagine a crown of thorns shoved into your head? The pain that would come with that? And I know you're thinking, well, that was Jesus. You know, he, had, he was a man, and he had nerve endings just like you and me. And he was able to, he didn't have to say that from the cross, but he was able to look down and say, Father, forgive them. That's the heart of God for each and every one of us. We can't forgive somebody that said a snide word to us at a Thanksgiving dinner because of something they said, and Jesus has forgiven you for everything you've ever done. And he won't stand for it. The Bible's pretty clear he will not stand for it. He said his forgiveness towards you is directly relational to your forgiveness of others. It's all over. I, I mean, the Lord's Prayer, right after the Lord's Prayer, go, go read, I think it's Matthew 7, right after the Lord's Prayer. He says, for, for the level you forgive others is how your Father will forgive you. He, he just doesn't put up with it. We have to forgive because forgiven people forgive. It's just that simple. Stephen was being stoned in Acts. And it says, as he was dying, he was, he was praying, Lord, do not hold this sin against these people. That's the heart of the gospel. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, that wrote the book of James. History says that they threw him off the temple roof, trying to kill him. And when he, when he fell down, when he dropped down, he did not die. So what do they do? They go down, they grab some clubs, and they beat him to death with clubs. And, and history says that while they were beating him, he was praying for them. That's how you walk a life without being offended. You could not offend James. You couldn't offend Stephen. You couldn't offend Jesus. Because they had perspective that everything was for the glory of God. Everything. And we can walk in that too. It's not impossible, church. It's just not. But we can't just wake up and hope things change. We have to be intentional. We have to be diligent. We have to ask God to change our perspective, that we would be able to consider it joy when we face opportunities to be offended. That's God's heart for us. All right, I'll get off of a fence. <laughs> That's funny, get off of a fence. All right, the third one. Stand your ground. This is the next play in the devil's playbook, or the enemy's playbook. Stand your ground. The enemy loves it when we do this. Because the root of this is basically pride. It's just pride. And we're playing right into his hands. Pride is actually the root of blaming and being offended. It, the, really, it's rooted in pride. It's, it's rooted in thinking more of yourself than you should. Pride says that what I want matters more than what you want. That's what it says. And that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. He wants you to stand up for yourself. You know, have you ever heard yourself saying like, well, I'm not going to let them get away with that. I'm not going to let them get the best of me. Who hasn't felt that in their heart? I felt it. The, the key is hopefully within a couple minutes of getting convicted of that, realizing, okay, that's not, that's not the approach Jesus would have. I'm glad Jesus didn't say, I'm not going to let these Pharisees get the best of me. Amen? And I'm pretty sure that he's our model that we're supposed to live by. 
If he was allowed, if he allowed himself to not have to not win the battle and not have to get the best of somebody else or stand up for himself, then we would all be in a lot of trouble right now. We'd still be bringing goats to, to the altar to sacrifice them. But Jesus was willing to lay it all down. He didn't, ha- he didn't let his pride get in the way. Paul, the Apostle Paul says that he was in the, in the very nature of God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid down his life for us. And it's the same thing for us. When we walk in pride, we're saying, I'm not going to let them get the best of me. Now, I'll say this. Pride is not the origin of every family relationship breaking down, but it is the obstacle that keeps all those broken relationships from being healed. Every time. Every single time, pride is what stands in the way of you having healed relationships in your, in your family. Every time. And it's up to us to choose whether or not we're going to allow that pride to root into our lives. Because pride is also a spirit. It's a demonic spirit. The enemy sends this spirit straight out of hell to us to try to affect our lives. And when we are walking in pride, we're doing nothing but hurting ourselves. And we're playing right into his hands. You know, they say that... Uh, Revival only comes when the church is unified, right? If you want revival in your, t- in your city or in your town or your, your country or your world, the church has to be unified. That, that's what brings revival. Well, it's the same thing in our personal life. If we want revival in our personal life, we have to be willing to be unified with other people in our lives. You know, the greatest awakening or spiritual awakening or uh, revival that ever happened, never recorded, was in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came. And 3,000 people were saved from a very short sermon that Peter preached after the Holy Spirit came. But it's very significant that we understand that the very first verse of Acts chapter 2 talks about the fact that the disciples were all together in the upper room. They were all together in one accord. And that is not a Honda. They couldn't have all fit in a Honda back then. They were together in one accord. They were unified. And you know, it's interesting because the verses right before this is when they cast lots to get the disciple to replace Judas. And Matthias got the, got the lot, but uh, a guy named Justice was the guy that didn't get the lot. He could have been frustrated and said, well, this is bogus. I'm not part of this. And caused all kinds of dissension within the disciples. He didn't do it because the very next verse, the very next chapter, it's talking about how they were all together in one accord. And then the Holy Spirit came and we saw this wonderful revival. It's the same thing in our life. We will see revival in our own life in our relationships with our family, when we're more concerned about unity than we are about being right. That's when we will see the revival happen in our relationships. If we're more, are you more concerned about being unified than you are about being right? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Because the, the easy answer, we're in church on Sunday morning, of course the easy answer is, oh, I want unity. But unity is not just something we simply say, like, I want that, and it just happens. Unity, to have unity, you have to work hard. You have to work hard to work together, and you have to lay down your rights. Amen. You have to be willing to let other people have their way, even when you know they're wrong. Amen. Ooh, that's not easy to do. And for so many of us, we're so concerned about being number one that we miss out on actually being one. Yeah, right? Let's, let's worry about being one more than about being number one and winning. There's no, the, the, the Christian life is not a competition. It's, we have to leave. I love sports. I love football, basketball, baseball. I love all those things. But those things have no place in our mentality when it comes to our walk in life and our faith. It's not about winning. If you want to win, the, the, the best way to win is to allow yourself to lose. Because that's what brings peace in our relationships. 
I'll say it again, healing and restoration come when we are more determined to have unity than we are to be right. Yeah, that's good. So you have to just check your own heart in that. And again, sometimes a restoration cannot happen because the other person won't give at all, but we can at least be healed ourselves in those broken relationships. All right, and then the final one, there's actually more than this, but I only have time for four today. The final play in the enemy's relationship playbook, the absurdity of insecurity. That's a tongue twister. Try saying that five times fast. The absurdity, I can't even say it twice. The absurdity of insecurity. Insecurity is a major culprit in keeping relationships healed from being healed and restored. Insecurity in our life is something the enemy is always going to try to exploit, especially in your relationships. It will rear its ugly head every time possible if we allow it. Now, we as, we as human beings, there, I, don't think there's any, there's, I don't know if there's anybody that is 100% secure, but we can walk, we can always be striving to take that next step to be more secure and more secure all the time. Let me, let me define it, first of all. Insecurity in our, in our walk in our life comes from one place and one place only. It comes from when we find our identity in anything other than Jesus Christ. It's that simple. When you find your worth, your value, what makes you who you are, when you find it anywhere else besides Jesus Christ, you're insecure. And it will, you can mask it for a while. It may not pop up every day, but it will come up. And it comes up a lot of times in these broken relationships that we have. That's when it really comes up. And it's so important for us that we find our security in who we are in Christ. And I mean, you could do a whole series just on this, frankly. I'm just going to spend a minute or two on it. But if, if you're trying to find your value based on how much money you make, what job you have, how you look, you know, how, what kind of makeup you use, how good your hair is, how many followers you have on Instagram, how many friends you have, the, 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 the type of cell phone you carry, if you're finding your value in any of those things, it'll never be enough. Now, are those things good to have? Of course. But someone said one time, and I love it, I say it all the time, it's okay to have the things as long as the things don't have you. Right? There's nothing wrong with having those things. But that we cannot find our value in who we are in those things. Because we are working directly contrary to what the Word of God says, and again, we're playing into the enemy's hands when we walk around in insecurity. And I, I think, you know, a great example of the enemy trying to exploit insecurity was when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert in Matthew 4, I believe it is. Satan was looking to exploit any insecurity that Jesus might have. Okay, if you know the story, he tempted him three different ways. The first two, he started by saying, if you really are the son of God, what does that mean? He's trying to poke at him. Oh, you think you're the son of God? Huh? We'll prove it. Now, we don't understand necessarily why him turning a stone into a bread would have, would have been so horrible, but obviously it would not have been a good thing because he would have been given in to the enemy's taunts of insecurity. He said, if you really are the son of God, turn this rock into some bread. You know, and if Jesus were like us and we had that ability, I mean, a lot of us would have probably been like, man, Satan ain't getting the best of me. Watch this. I'm going to turn it. I'm not just going to turn it into bread. I'm going to turn it into French bread. <laughs> it's piping hot, fresh out of the oven from Subway. You know? <laughs> Subway's not the best bread. It's not even close. But it's not bad when it's hot. But Jesus wouldn't take the bait, did he? And then the next time, Satan takes him to the top of the temple. He says, if you really are the son of God, throw yourself down. 
God won't let anything happen to you. And Jesus responds by saying, you should not put the Lord your God to a test. But what say, if Jesus had the slightest bit of insecurity, he may have done, he may have fallen into the enemy's traps there. But he didn't. But that's what the enemy does in our life too. He'll say, oh, if, you're, if you really are a Christian, dot, 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 fill in the blank. He'll do that to us. He will taunt us to try to make that insecurity rear its head in our life. You know, as long as we mind our own business and we stay in our room and don't do anything, that insecurity probably won't come out a whole lot. But if we're really living our life with family and in relationships, that insecurity is going to pop up all over the place. And it's going to affect our lives. We're going we're to start putting so much of our energy towards trying to feed that insecurity, towards trying to make that insecurity go away by filling it with what we think will help, whether it's money, job, status, whatever, that we're, we're not focused on anything else. And it will actually hurt our relationships. If you, have a, if you have broken relationships in your family, that insecurity is really going to get elevated quickly. It'll pop to the top. If you're insecure about anything, that's, that's when we can't, uh, you know, admit blame or, or let go of offense or, or swallow our pride because that insecurity starts to just take over. And we start to focus on all those things that we really shouldn't be focusing on. But God's heart for us is that we would be secure in him. It, it goes back to, to having perspective about knowing that if we, can't be, if we can't be offended if we know that everything's for the glory of God. It also, it, it's the same thing in knowing who you are in him. You know, I would encourage you if, you, if you don't know who you are in Christ, go read Psalm 139. You know, that he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. He created you. He created your innermost being. He knew all of your days before one of them came to be. He loves you so much. Somebody said one time that if you were the only person ever born, God would, Jesus would have still died on the cross for you. I believe that with all my heart. All my heart. I believe Jesus died for me. He died on the cross for me. Now, as a guy up here preaching, I'll say he died for you guys too. But in the mornings when I'm having my own prayer time, I'm saying, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Me. That means, that means a lot to me. It means a lot that he died for you too, but it means a lot more that he died for me. And you can all personalize it. There's nothing wrong with personalizing that and saying, thank you, Jesus, because that's his heart. If you were the only one born, he would have died for you. That gives me value. That's all I need to know. My value is because of that, not because of how much money I make or don't make or what you think of me. Amen? There's no place for insecurity. And we can walk in that victory. You have nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. Now, do we do our best and we, we want to be in relationships and we want to, you know, we want to work hard and have a good life? Of course we do. But those aren't the things that define us. What defines me is in the Word of God. And we need to keep our nose in that Word of God reading it daily and studying it and, uh, and applying it to our own lives. And when it says something that God did for somebody, personalize it. He did it for you. He did it for me. And that'll help us to walk in the security that he desires for us to walk in. Be comfortable in your own skin. Don't try to be somebody you're not. Don't try to be somebody else. I say all the time, I'm very, very comfortable in my skin. I know I'm not the best at, at anything, really. I just, I, I'm just, I try to be who God called me to be. And I'm good with it. And it's not because I think I'm better than anybody. In fact, it's, it's nothing like that at all. It's just that I'm comfortable because this is who God made me. Do I wish I was six foot? Of course. But I sure don't let myself get insecure about the fact that I'm not. You know, or that I, I mean, there's all kinds of things we could be insecure about. We just have to be good with, with, with who God created us to be and walk in that and own it. And if we own it, man, there's, you're almost impenetrable to the darts of the enemy when it comes to this area of your life. Amen? So that's the, that's, that's the first, uh, that's the intro to the devil's playbook. I don't have copies of this or I'd give you one. But uh, 
Now that we have his playbook, we know how to fight against him. We can, we can, we can beat him at his own game. Amen? Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I close today. Any prayer leaders, love for you to come up. We're gonna, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond, just to come to the altar. Uh, they're going to play a song, give us a little time to, to come and pray. You can pray, come pray with somebody up here that's a prayer leader. You can come all by yourself, just stand at the altar and just talk to God between you and him. I encourage you, though, church, please, please, please. I know coming, to, coming up front like this, you don't have to come to the altar. If you, don't, if you don't feel comfortable coming to the altar, at least do it in your seat. Just say, God, highlight if any of these four areas in my life are, are prevalent and keeping me from having healed relationships in my life. Please highlight it. And please show me, God. I want to lay myself down. I want to live my life to glorify you, not to glorify myself. At the end of the day, that's what matters. And, you know, all these things that and maybe, maybe some of them have highlighted something in your life. I want you to know there's no place for condemnation for any of us in this room. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for us. We are victorious. We are mighty in him. Okay? And so if any of these are highlighted for you, all you have to do is say, God, forgive me. And help me to walk this out in a way that will honor you and glorify you. Uh, I saw a post on, on Instagram this week. Um, a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. In fact, I think it was Linda Hand that posted it. It said, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Hallelujah. That's the heart of the gospel. You can't change the past. But boy, you can start today and say, from now on, it's going to be different. It is not going to be the same. That's God's heart for each and every one of us. So as, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to come up. I just encourage you to take a minute just to pray. Father God, I thank you today for your heart. I thank you, Lord, that you love us so much. God, that you came and you died a sinner's death so that we could know you in a powerful way. And God, we just come today, and Lord, we, we've probably all given in to some of these plays of the enemy at some point in life, maybe some today. But God, I pray today that you would help us to walk in the freedom that you paid a price for us to walk in. I pray that we'd be able to walk free from blame, from offense, from pride, and from insecurity. That we would walk free, Lord. As we sang earlier today, the chains are gone. Our debt is paid. We don't have to walk in any of these things, God. And I pray you'd help us to let go of the guilt we may have from these situations being in our life, God. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that your blood covers all of our sins. That we are, that we are righteous and we are pure in you, God. I pray you'd speak to us now as we take a moment to pray. And God, help us to have the, the strength to be able to be weak in your presence give you all the glory in Jesus' name.